You are listening to Fanta Tracks. Because of the following special program, Wonder Woman and the Incredible Hulk will not be presented this evening. Star Wars news in a single file. This is Making Tracks. Here are your hosts, Mark Newbold and Mark Lowcaster. That's not true. That's impossible. You're listening to episode 40 of Making Tracks, brought to you by the wonderful folk over at fanfortracks.com. My name's Mark Mulcaster, and as we hurtle closer and closer towards the International Space Station, my co-pilot on this intergalactic mission is none other than Mr. Mark Newbold. Mark, how are we looking? But I'm flying. You're flying. Nobody, nobody told me I was flying, dude. I'm, I'm at the back having a party. I'm, I'm barbecuing on the engines. I'm not, I'm not flying this thing. Oh, if you're not flying it, who's flying it? Because I'm just playing with that little floating dinosaur toy that we've got in the cockpit. I wonder what you're going to say then. Just to prove there's no gravity. Yeah. I, I, I was convinced you were going to say you were playing with the knobs in the cockpit, but that's a baby Yoda thing, isn't it? That's definitely a baby Yoda thing, or just commonly now known as the baby. The baby, yes, of course. Yeah. Well, we're getting into that later, won't we? Talking about that. Yeah, we'll talk about that in a bit. How are you doing? Mark. Very good. The weather's nice outside and people are starting to enjoy, get a bit of sun because after being cooped up for so long, although socially distanced sun, of course. And loads, obviously, like I say, loads for us to talk about on the episode today. We've just had our Hell Hickle episode come out. Yeah, that was great. Yeah, which seems to be going down well. So that was uh, that was a lot of fun to do. Good stuff. How about you? Yeah, I'm all good, man. I've been enjoying the sun. I've been pretty bad and buying lots of stuff recently, so um, which is good for the collection, bad for the bank balance, but hey, who cares? Can't take it with you. And and as um, our good friend Mr. Dave Tree told me once, at the end of the day, it's basically just a big race to see who can die with the most amount of stuff. Before we ramble off into weird avenues of talk, Jedi Temple Challenges. It was originally going to come out on Disney Plus later on in the year, I think October time. Yeah. It just announced now that it's coming out to the Star Wars Kids YouTube channel in early June. What do you think of that? I mean, I've seen the clips. We've all seen the trailer. It looks like a lot of fun, doesn't it? I, I watched that trailer and I actually got slightly goosebumps from watching it. Um, yeah. And two, I was insanely jealous about those kids. It looks like a lot of fun. And, you know, it's shades of kind of uh, crystal maze and all that kind of stuff kind of yeah. spring to mind. But also it's, it's just the fact they're all wearing these kind of really nice Galaxy Edge-esque costumes with Imperial Stormtrooper forearm yeah. braces, which I thought was pretty cool. Putting it onto Star Wars Kids makes it free for everybody to watch, which is not a bad thing, you know, so there's no issues with subscriptions. It's not a bad thing. I do wonder why they've done that, though. I mean, have you got any idea? Yeah, I think... I think, I think the logic was, I saw a little a tweet, I think it was Scott Bromley who's one of the producers behind it, works on the Star Wars show and, and has, has done stuff on here. I think his logic was, it's sound logic, you know, we're still in lockdown, things yeah. are still sort of up and down. It's a it's a very upbeat, positive kind of vibe show. It's a kid's show as well. No canon to worry about if that's what people are thinking about. But yeah, <laughs> I think just get it out there and get it, I mean, it will end up on Disney. I've no doubt it will end exactly. up on Disney+. Plus. So that's where I would say a lot of people will probably find it. But just to give kids the the option and the Star Wars Kids is a bigger channel than people realise you know they've got a lot of subscribers yeah yeah and I mean I think also you've got to remember that just from my own experience with like my nieces and nephews and my girlfriend's two boys they don't consume TV the way that we do they don't no. tend to view much on Netflix it's all YouTube they'll watch everything from people playing games and yeah. you know unboxing of just like the most random stuff and I'm, I'm not even talking about collectibles just talking about literally random stuff like I think my nephew was watching an unboxing of um 
a new range of slime like yeah. the, the other week yeah. as one does so it's a good idea because it's kind of focusing the um directly to the the audience that they they probably want to appeal to and then obviously hopefully as those kids get older you can transition them over and their households into disney plus if they haven't got disney plus already so it's not a bad thing and i think also just by listening to the trailer that they played on the star wars show it's very positive there's lots of positive reinforcement by the, the yeah. teams it's like you know one team member sends the other one oh yeah you can do it come on you've got this and all this kind of stuff which is really positive and i think in in this day and age it's going to be a breath of fresh air i think for everybody it is it's a very upbeat sort of show it's great to see ahmed doing stuff to do with oh, star amazing, wars again. isn't it is it he, yeah. he does look good in jedi robes he does it's gonna be fun it's nice and, and also you know we're gonna talk about disney gallery shortly it's nice to have a weekly star wars tv show there you've got star wars this week in star wars okay a couple of minutes long but you know this week in star wars star wars show once a month there's regular star wars content around the wider sort of film and tv stuff it's good it's good it keeps us all busy exactly keeps us all busy keeps star wars in the forefront of people's minds you know the diehard fans that's not actually something that they need to worry about i think it kind of goes back to almost what um i think partly what daisy ridley said uh, a little while ago about saying how she doesn't quite feel the love and actually what happens is people you know after the end of a trilogy the more casual fans they quite easily forget and you know put star wars to the back of their mind because yeah. obviously right now we've got more important things to worry about yeah. but also actually if you're not a hardcore star wars fan whatever that may mean to you You'll think about Star Wars when it comes out, and then once it finishes, you're you're thinking about Black Widow, and you're thinking about the new Bond film or whatever. So that's just this kind of cyclical kind of way that we just um, consume stuff these days. So the more Star Wars we have on our news feeds, in Twitter, on YouTube, you know, it shows it's not going to go away. Hey, I'm Matthew Reinhardt. Hi, I'm Kevin Wilson, and we're on Phantatrax. So earlier in the week, ILM put out a lovely 40th anniversary retrospective, which had a number of the ILM members from back in the day who actually are still active in and around ILM and the film industry in general. It ran for about 90 minutes and it was a really nice chat, which kind of opened up a lot of memories from some of the members about The Empire Strikes Back and the pre-production stage and all that. Did you get a chance to watch it, Mark? I did. I watched a bit of it live, which was cool. Near and listen to him talk about film all day, you know, and Joe Johnson, oh, I didn't recognise him at first. I still think of him with a floppy long hair, which is ridiculous because that was like 40 odd years ago. But Exactly, um, yeah. You know, hearing him talk about his experience in the course of the design work that he does and then people like, I mean, Bill George moderated it and came to Lucasfilm in 81, just after Empire. Obviously, Raiders was the big film that year. But, mm. you know, and he's had like a, a monumental career with ILM all the way through. Yeah, he's Even to, like, legend. How can you not <laughs> recognise that hair? Um, yeah. <laughs> tip, tip it, obviously, tip it, all the stuff he did, you know, we saw all the work that he he did you know the torn torns and on jedi later with the rancor and just the whole vibe of, of what those guys did and you compare what they do now it, you know the technology and the creativity is just insane but it's it's the analog versus digital argument not argument sort of comparison isn't it you know you go back to when these guys were literally oh that pipe cleaner will do for the armature on this creature or whatever it might be it was literally spitting sawdust you know you watch those old ilm videos making a jedi classic creatures and, and you look at the old workshop and how tactile it was you know yeah. and it, it's different now and actually weirdly you know again we'll talk about gallery episode five practical you know going back to the physical stuff becoming more prominent becoming more again a part of the production of these of these shows and these films that the marriage between digital and and now stagecraft and the physical stuff and and all the stuff that like hal will do with character animation it's all merging together in this really sweet storm but back when ilm were doing empire 
and they were literally on the frontier of, of visual effects and special effects and all the stuff mm. they were doing. Yeah, like you say, it was just fascinating to listen to those guys talk about it. Yeah, and it was such a kind of natural flow of a conversation as well. Yeah, and yeah. It was it was really nice to have that, and also it's just the kind of stuff I think if you were in a panel, I don't think anybody's going to bring up about the idea of like using two by fours to plan out where everybody's departments are in, yeah. in the office and stuff like that. Uh, so there's was really nice kind of fun anecdote. I think we forget just how on the back foot they were. They were told on one hand, you know, you're using most of the ships from Star Wars, so you don't need to worry about having to building yeah. all those and designing all those but then yeah. suddenly it's like well actually hang on you've got to build an ATAT and you've got to build snow speeders and oh yeah by the way all this stuff is happening in daylight on a planet not in yeah. space so yeah. then suddenly it's just like not only is it more work it's harder work and work that you haven't quite figured out again which is where these guys all of them just excel because they just come at stuff at such unique angles and go yeah. well what about if we try this and I think part of it's just down to the fact they're all fans of film of like cinematography and so it's not just a technological challenge it's an artistic challenge as well the work on Empire stands for itself and it was groundbreaking back then and it still holds up to this day I think oh absolutely and it's that merge of being a problem solver I mean Lorne Peterson was in there we played our interview with him from Celebration Chicago a couple of episodes ago but I interviewed him years ago sort of mid to 2000s and randomly spoke about Wild Wild West and some of the tricky stuff we had to figure out in there and there was a sequence in Wild Wild West when they if you remember the, the big mechanical spiders there and the canyons falling down sure. or there's rocks yeah. in the canyons falling down and he was brought in to figure out how to make these two foot high fake rocks look like real rocks falling over and collapsing and he built this little system where you put weights in the bottom with oil in so the mm-hmm. distribution of the oil would slowly bring these things over because just using gravity essentially point being problem solving and these guys those early ILM guys people now digital and, and practical stuff now have different materials to work with and different considerations and it's a different ball game altogether but back then nobody had thought of these things before certainly not bringing it to life visually the way that these guys did so it's as much like you say it's the artistry it's making it fit with all the story stuff because story comes first you know all these things but also figuring out how to do it it's brilliant I, I hope I really hope ILM do more of this sort of stuff I think it's just always good to be able to kind of have some of these accounts on record and it's also interesting to, that it actually came from the ILM YouTube channel rather than necessarily just you know starwars.com I think it's mm. quite nice to actually showcase ILM as a, a company in its own right Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the history they've got, and ILM's history obviously started with Star Wars, but it doesn't just cover Star Wars. You know, it's always no. been the, the the primary thing, hasn't it? Star Wars. Okay, ILM has worked on Close Encounters. ILM has went off and worked on Galactica, and then Empire comes along. So that's where they kind of learnt their craft and figured it all out. But going forward from there, you think Raiders, Dragon Slayer, ET, you know, and all Poltergeist, and then all of a sudden you're rolling out into the eighties when in the mid-80s it felt like any big film, and even films that weren't smash hits, you know, like Batteries Not Included, and you know, and uh, did they work in Explorers? I think they did. You know, and, and that, that sort of era of film, right through to sort of Last Crusade, and then hit the digital era really like Hook and Always you know which wasn't a big hit you know the Richard Dreyfuss film yeah, but you know right. ILM did all the you know the plane stuff on that and you forget their history is far more than just Star Wars so yeah you're right it's a really good point actually yeah it's, it's good that they put it out on the ILM channel that company definitely needs a light shined on it definitely deserves that Hi Paul Blake here Greedo from Star Wars A New Hope and you're listening to Fanfare Tracks 
Okay, so last studio episode of Making Tracks, we had our first part of our chat with Hal Hickel. This is Hal talking about his wider film career with ILM and in previous companies before. So let's catch up with Hal, the second part of our chat, talking about his career. Because you're a creative guy, or anyone in your field is creative but you've got the skills that the director or the producer or whoever needs. When do you have to sort of switch off and go, I can only take my thoughts to a certain point and I just have to put that to one side for somebody else's vision? Where's the demarcation line in that sense? Well, that's the tricky part of the job, honestly. One one of the tricky parts and, and maybe the most tricky part is learning how to be passionate about the work that you've been given and invested in it enough to bring great ideas to it and to be really excited about it but not so precious about it when the director says, yeah, I want to go in a different direction than what you're doing there. Or, you know, I don't think this is working for the film. Let's try this instead that you don't then uh, become sort of dead inside. Like, okay, fine. Just tell me what you want and I'll just do it. Which is how some people react when they get notes and criticism. And it's not a great way to work. Number one, you're going to kind of make yourself unhappy. And number two, you're not going to do the best job you can. And yeah. I think I've done a reasonably good job. I mean, certainly, you know, as I was saying before, there are days when you're just like, oh, you know, this project. And <laughs> But I'd say on balance, I, I generally feel super grateful to be doing what I do. And, and it's because I think somehow or other, maybe it's just how I'm made. I like being part of a, a crew rather than being like the independent filmmaker who's going to go out and direct his own stuff. That's never honestly been that much at the forefront for me. I got quickly locked in on the visual effects and I like the idea of being part of the visual effects crew, making the visual effects. Like it, it, it wasn't like, well, that's just a stepping stone to directing my own films. And so because I kind of embraced that whole idea that I'm part of the crew, I'm going to be in the visual effects end of the work, making that stuff. I don't know, maybe that just prepared me in, in terms of my mindset for, you know, the work not being mine. It's mm. sort of ours. One of the things I've liked best about the transition from being an animator to, to being an animation supervisor is I like getting to know directors. I like trying to figure out what they like, what they're after, what their how their sense of humor is, what they're trying to achieve with the film, and then figuring out how to do that. I enjoy that. So for me, it's not a hard thing. I don't mind being not at the pinnacle of the creative leadership of a, of a given film project. But although that said, I enjoy being at the pinnacle of of my little part of the movie thing. I do. I, I, I won't say otherwise. I mean, I, I really enjoyed getting my first opportunity to anim soup. Like I know animators who are super talented and I've asked them and said, you know, do you have aspirations to be an anim soup? And they're like, no, I like to just focus on animating. I really like animating and I just want to focus on my shot and not have to worry about all that other stuff and i totally totally get that you say about talking to different directors and sort of facing up with different directors and getting the sense of what they want from a project so can you sort of look at a film and sort of think well that was that was what jj wanted on super 8 or that was what gore Vinicius wanted on rango or whatever you can kind of see what their flavor is from what the work that you've done does that make sense can you is that how it works mm-hmm. Yeah, although I've, I have to say, I've been super lucky that I feel like everybody I've worked with has been completely unique. There hasn't been both the directors and the projects. I mean, I worked on a few sequels, but still the challenges always seem to be changing. So just to say that I feel like it's rare that I would get onto a project with a director and they would 
present an idea or have a, a sort of vision for the film or whatever it might be. And I think to myself, oh, this is a bit like this other thing that I did. So, OK, I can you know figure it. I mean, that's actually one of the things I enjoy most about my job is the variety to go from Attack of the Clones to Pirates of the Caribbean to Rango to Iron Man. You know what I mean? It's yeah. a pretty Warcraft, Pacific Rim, pretty different projects, really different directors. You know, George, Stephen, Guillermo, Duncan Jones, Gore Binsky, John Favreau, Lawrence Kasdan. I mean, pretty, again, super different ways of communicating, different senses of humor, different ways of making films. So uh, it, I feel like everyone's a kind of a new adventure. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to say it's a heck of a roster of directors to have worked for. It's great. It's great. I mean, I'm. I look forward to working with more women directors, people of color. That'd be the only thing that that I'd say is lacked. Uh, that said, last season I got to work with Rick Famuyiwa on Mandalorian and Deb Chow and Bryce Dallas Howard. So I'm getting there. But yeah, no, I've been incredibly lucky. I mean, Stephen and George were my childhood heroes you know in terms of filmmaking and so working on ai and first two prequels was obviously a dream come true for me our association with gore has been incredibly fruitful and fun you know so the, the first three pirates films and in, in rango and you know john favreau like uh, worked with him on iron man on marvel's first film and then we didn't work together again until season one of mandalorian but it's just been like Connecting with an old friend, you know, we have a shared language already and everything, and it's been super fun. John's a lot of fun to work for. He's a very collaborative director, and he invites people to um, contribute outside of their normal areas, which is really fun. He's not the director who's ever going to say, stay in your lane. If you have a, a comment about how the scene is cut, he welcomes hearing that. I mean, it's not a free-for-all. People no. do have some kind of dominion over their work, but he's um, he's just very encouraging of collaboration from all sides. It's really, really fun. Now, stepping back a little bit, <clears throat> I was fascinated to see you worked on the first Toy Story. I mean, that's that's a two-hour conversation all by itself because of the journey <laughs> that, that the, you know, that the, the graphics group becomes Pixar and works all the way through to becoming the company that makes that film and the amount of times that the computers nearly crashed and they nearly lost everything. What was it really like working on that? Was it like Kings of the Wild Frontier? Were you really on the edge of the technology at the time? I have to say that was a tremendously lucky break for me. When I'd gone CalArts in 82, my focus then wasn't character animation. It was motion graphics stuff. I was really fascinated by like the slit scan sequence in 2001 and a lot of that kind of backlit motion graphic work, which at that time was done on a piece of equipment called a down shooter, or you guys would call it a rostrum camera. It's a camera on a, on rails pointing downward at a bed of artwork, and you, the artwork is lit from below and you use different color gels and things to create effects. I was really fascinated with that. And my goal in the 80s, when I had gotten my first job, was to build up a little resume of work up in Portland and then go back to L.A. to work for some of the bigger shops that were doing that kind of work. But computer graphics were making inroads into flying logo work, motion graphics work. And so by the time I was ready to try to get back down to California, a lot of those shops were in flux or they were closing or they were buying computers and selling their down shooters or whatever. And I just wasn't prepared for that. Luckily, I got on at Will Vinton Studios doing stop motion, which I had done as a kid and so it kind of got me back to that. It got me back focused on character animation. But again, I'm, I'm working at Will Vinton's and I'm thinking, well, I'll build up a reel of work and then I'll go down and work, I hope, for ILM on projects like, you know, that have stop motion creatures like Willow and, you know, when those would come along. And I was also learning to operate these motion control cameras, which were useful in visual effects, where it's a sort of a machine that, that uh, a motorized 
camera dolly, really, that can do these really repeatable, precise camera movements. And you pro program in the computer. Not programming like where you write coding language. You're basically animating the rig in the computer. Yeah. So I was doing that and thinking, All right, I'm going to build this reel and go down and work in practical effects. And then Jurassic Park came out. And I thought, well, once again, computer graphics is destroying my, <laughs> my career goals because I didn't know anything about computer graphics. I mean, it was fascinating, but it was fascinating to see it in the abyss and in T2. But the idea that they could do living, breathing characters seemed far-fetched. So it seemed like stop-motion work, the, the old kind of Ray Harryhausen stop-motion work for creatures in live-action films still seemed safe until that movie came out. And then uh, just a few years later, I, I heard through a friend that Pixar was behind schedule and looking everywhere for animators. And back then, there weren't thousands of schools all over the world cranking out talented animators who were savvy with CG that that just didn't exist. And so they were scooping up animators from the cell, 2D and, and stop motion areas because their software was for animating, at least was reasonably artist friendly, though primitive by today's standards. And so they really just wanted people who understood character animation and then they teach them to use the software. But I didn't know any of that until I got this sort of lucky break of getting word that they um, were looking for folks. So I sent a, a reel down and got hired and it was a great little company at the time i'd say maybe even fewer than 200 people and in these little offices in point richmond so we weren't in emeryville where they are now on their big beautiful campus it was much more modest little didn't look like anything it looked like a little high-tech campus that might have a or, or just business campus really that might have an insurance company or something in it but it was it was pixar and um we all worked with these big super expensive silicon graphics workstations which were something not attainable by the average human. And then, of course, just a few years later, that was all swept aside and, and we were all working on very inexpensive uh, PCs just, you know, within over the next 10 years or less. So quite a sea change there. But yeah, Pixar was an awesome, super creative little company. I mean, I remember I was there the day they officially rebranded the company from Pixar because Pixar really had been started to make software and hardware, computer graphics, imaging software and hardware. But they had a little group that was doing animation, you know, and that group expanded and they did commercials and things. And they had this goal of creating an animated film. They got backing from Disney. Disney didn't own them yet. They just uh, got backing from them to make Toy Story. And so it had this really great core, you know, of animation nuts, you know, people who just lived and breathed animation. And that was my first exposure to that because Vinton's was a world unto itself. It wasn't uh, Will Vinton Studios in Portland. wasn't very connected to Hollywood or the larger animation industry. Yeah. We didn't have people there who were like, oh, yeah, I worked at Disney for 10 years and now I work here. A lot of us, it was our first job of any, you know, for me and my second, but really my first real production job. We were sort of insulated. We didn't have a lot of connections. There weren't a lot of veterans at our studio who had worked everywhere else. So going to Pixar, that's when I really first felt like I was in a movie studio as opposed to like a quirky little animation house you know this felt like a movie studio like yeah. would hear the producers talking about their meetings with the executives at disney and i would hear and john the director would come by you know and it was a feature i was now i was working on a feature and i know it was just sort of everything scaled up even though it was the still quite a small little company and it felt like family but you know now i was working with people who had just come off of Nightmare Before Christmas or mm. had worked at Disney feature animation or, you know, had those kinds of backgrounds. And so it was just kind of a, a, di a different world. And it was great. I loved it. And, and I discovered once I was there that the motion control camera operation I'd been doing at Vinton's had laid the groundwork for me for animating 
characters in the computer because it was very similar, as it turns out, um, just in terms of the actual physical way you do it yeah. <laughs> with yeah. software. You know, you're, you're sort of posing something. In, in the one case, it was this motion control camera rig. You, know, you drive the carriage down the track, raise the camera up, adjust the pan and tilt, set the focus, and then you set keys on all those axes of movement. And then you go, let's say, all right, now two seconds later in the shot, I want the camera down at this end of the track and down low and panned over here and focused here. And then the computer sort of in between those two positions. Well, that's how you animate a character in the computer. You you pose it like a puppet at one point in time, go a little bit later in the shot, pose it again. And the computer does the in-betweening, which usually looks terrible because it's sort of linear. And then you adjust and fix. I mean, that's a simplistic description, but... Yeah. I didn't realize I was even doing something that would help me with being a computer animator. In fact, I had a dream. <laughs> I was all packed up at home, ready to move down to San Francisco for this job at Pixar. And I went to sleep that night exhausted from getting the truck loaded up and everything. And I had a dream that I got to Pixar and they welcomed me in and they brought me down to this room and sat me at a table. And all along the walls of this room were these big metal racks with boxes and the boxes contain different pieces of computers like and literally like you know motherboards power supplies uh, even pieces for you know your monitor we didn't have flat screen monitors then they were crts but there'd be like the big tube and the other pieces and they say okay we'll leave you to it get your computer and monitor assembled and we'll be back in a little while to uh you know or get you oriented and i was like uh what excuse me you want me to i don't know anything about putting together a uh, excuse me. And, you know, the door closes and I'm just left alone. <laughs> Fortunately, that was, that was not the experience that my computer was fully assembled when I reached Pixar. We rolled out last week the hour-long interview with Hal talking specifically about his time at ILM working on Star Wars. And we talk about his career all the way through from Phantom right up to The Mandalorian. So go and check it out. It's on the front page of Phantom Tracks right now. It's called From Phantom to Mando. So it's an hour-long chat with Hal Hickel. Go and uh, have a listen. I'm Anthony Daniels and you are listening to Phantom Tracks. Well done. So the Friday just gone saw the release of the Disney Gallery, The Mandalorian, Episode 5, which uh, basically pulls back the curtain on the practical effects employed in the series. Um, in particular, obviously, the artistry behind the practical models, the effects, and the animatronic creatures. It really kind of broke down what the crew actually did and what they built, and the baby, or Baby Yoda, or the child, however you want to call it. Mark, did you get a chance to see this one? I did. It was, uh, again, as they've all been, it was a fascinating an episode like we just said earlier talking about the ilm guys uh, working on empire you know you don't realize or you do realize more now in a weird way that there's been this sort of ebb and flow of technology over the years that you know you went from optical and sort of hands-on you know physically animating a speeder bike going through you know a forest being filmed on a, a steady cam at high speed rate you know and they merge that together get the, the speeder bike chase and then years later you would do that all in cg but now you look at it and you think how would they do it now because you've got the practical which is the focus of this episode baby yoda the child baby whatever just don't put him in the corner you know whatever you want to call it <laughs> now is an animatronic you know and you think well george had made underworld 10 years ago no doubt he would have done a baby yoda type character as a cg creator 
animation like he'd done Yoda in the prequels but now because the tech wasn't there to do an animatronic Yoda to that level of sophistication whereas now you know recently we spoke to Brian Herring we spoke to Neil Scanlon and people like that you know and you realise that the tech for digital has gone crazy and, and looks more and more lifelike as we go forward but also the technology for real in the room animatronic creatures has also gone crazy mm. you know the, the gears get smaller the power gets better the, just everything about it yeah. the silicon for the skin gets better and you know and now with stagecraft you know the actors are in the environment that can be like you know like we said before you can change it in a heartbeat you know so everything's coming together and this episode really highlighted that that you look back to star wars was like ground zero for for big movie special effects and then the next major step forward jedi was a huge leap but the next major step forward really was kind of t2 you know with the t1000 and then jurassic was like another mega leap and it almost feels like this is the start of the next step up yeah do you get what i mean yeah, I totally do. And I think Werner Herzog kind of actually nailed it when he says, you're now back to a stage where the technology is becoming invisible. Yeah. And that is kind of what you want. Remember how with The Force Awakens, there's that big push to say, hey, everything's really practical and we're doing loads of practical stuff. And actually, that's true. They did a lot. But then also they, they had to still use CG. And now we're kind of getting to that point where it's like we're using CG with a stagecraft in a way that is actually practical, Yeah, which is the ideal scenario. And it's the same with, um, like I say, with the puppetry and the actual kind of technology that's been employed to create and bring these characters to life. It means that everything feels authentic and you're not necessarily compromising the quality because of the fact that either having to use a puppet or you're doing a, a CG one. And there's that really fun moment where Deborah Chow mm. said about they were they were filming with Werner Herzog and he said, oh, you know, don't shoot the clean plates, just use a puppet, believe in the yeah, puppet. Don't be cowards. Yeah, yeah. Don't be cowards. Yeah, exactly. Which is kind of really fun. In fairness, you should always shoot clean plates because you never know when you when you need Absolutely. them, actually, in, in yeah. practicality. But um, I think it goes to show how believable that puppet is. And yeah. I just think it's really fun that actually they, they just refer to it as a baby, you know, and you kind of think, are they, is that, that's kind of what they've called it. And I'm just yeah. surprised that actually if, they've, if they were referring it to the baby then, why they didn't actually, you know, when the products come out, why it's not referred to as the baby. I don't know. Yeah. Is it a bit too cute or... I don't know. Yeah. I mean, you what you see the you see the development of the creature as they sort of went through all yeah. the designs, and and obviously it can't not be informed by Yoda, and and it makes me wonder whether that was at some point a consideration or maybe they didn't want to be too on the nose because maybe that's a reveal for later I don't know also Quill I mean I, mm. I kind of thought well Quill must be must be CG they must be you know the mouth movements and stuff is too good and, and then you see yeah. the animatronic it's like holy they, yeah, this amazing. is all on set you know absolutely amazing again to just step back to our Hal Hickel interview that we posted this past weekend you know a lot of the stuff that he talks about in here on the round table he goes into even greater depth in the interview that we did together you know just sort of saying that the opportunities that, that Stagecraft gives you to put you in the environment must give them so much confidence in that they can really just focus on Baby Yoda or a quill or whatever you want to whichever creature it is you're focusing on performance so all the, all the focus goes away from the technology that like Werner Hurt says becomes increasingly invisible the director doesn't have to think about any of that they can just focus on getting the best performance so when they said when Deborah Chow again said about Quill saying you know you're looking for the small moments the little movements and you know the character stuff the character yeah. stuff in Mando Mark Hamill did an interview recently when he basically said I'm kind of envious of the Mandalorian because all the focus is on the characters the focus isn't on the tech and and that again because the technology has advanced so much and has got so smooth and this is season one I mean Again, Hal, he can't say anything about season two. It was an agreement of our interviewers that I wouldn't ask about season two. But at the end, I say, well, 
season two worth going to be worth watching? Silly leading question. He's like, well, what do you think? You know, of course it is. In stagecraft, you know, in season one, it's all environments, it's all backgrounds. You see a couple, you see a couple of welders in the in the prison episode in the distance. But over time, you know, they want to get it so that they can have a creature appear on on stagecraft. So the actors have got something to act to, and the light will bounce off. The, I mean, obviously, Mando with a helmet, you know, that causes reflections, and and stagecraft is beautiful, perfect for that because it all reflects off the helmet. You, you know, you get to a point where everything improves and everything gets better and they get more used to the tech and the application of it and the development continues you know it's not like this is stagecraft final version this is stagecraft version one isn't it you know so Mm. it's only going to improve yeah to me it just said to me well you've got this point now where these creatures and and animatronics and all the other practical stuff that they use anything they touch physical is there you know is, is is getting better and better it can only make the story feel more real which is what we all want really hey man it's me kevin smith star wars fan the tracks fan. So on Thursday, just gone, Hasbro released a, a nice range of new Black Series figures, including revamped packaging. They have basically re-released, but improved, the whole Rebels main cast. And for the first time ever, they've included Zeb, which is pretty cool. All the artwork on the packages has been redesigned, so you've got this nice key art on the side for when you're displaying it on the shelf. They've gone through and they've tweaked some of the sculpts to make them a bit more realistic and look a little bit more accurate to the, the animated... Well, they're more kind of humanistic styles, aren't they? The, the artwork's gorgeous, and uh, yeah, I'm just looking at the image now. It's all in purple, so I think they're colour coding each film or Era TV series. Or something, yeah. Yeah. So Rebels is in blue, uh, purple rather, and, and Empire's in blue, and Jedi's in green, and I think Mando's in sort of a gold colour. So it's a nice way of doing it. I, I, I wonder. I mean, I love the packaging. I, nine times out of ten, I buy things because the packaging works for me. You know, and I, I'm not a Black Series collector, but I've, I actually went through my collection the other day, and I've got more Black Series stuff than I realised. And seeing it these, creeps like, up, doesn't it? it it's weird, isn't it? You know, like the carbonized figures that came out, you know, the packaging for those was gorgeous. And that's, yeah. again, that's why I got most of them. One thing that might annoy collectors, one, they kind of feel like they've got to buy them again. But like you just said, they've, they've not only, well, finally released Zeb, but also they've redone the faces, the Ahsoka sculpt on the faces better and clearly, you know, and here, you know, you can see that they've done work on it. So it's not just a straight up rebox. They've actually re-sculpted elements of these figures. To have these on the shelves will look phenomenal. Uh, it always looked nice with the black box with the numbering and stuff and I know collectors like that and so do I I mean I collected the Black Series the ships I'm still chasing Mm -hmm. a few down but you know they look great on the shelf with all the numbering you know just cuts me up that there's missing ones but there you go but but these look phenomenal yeah you're right the artwork is gorgeous the artwork's gorgeous the the figures look nice I mean they like I said they've got the more kind of humanised real life uh, sculpts to them Zeb's been released and he looks pretty mean actually he's got a bit of a scowl which looks quite cool to get all seven it's uh, a good 140 quid you've got to put down which is um, a fair chunk of change it's no more than normal Black Series figures but yes as you say it might be a bit hard to swallow if you've been faithfully collecting all of the Black Series but then you know if you have been you're probably more than prepared to put down the money for these I, I, I think so I think yeah you know if you've been collecting I mean friend of the show Martin Keeler Martin's always been a Black Series guy you know and that's what he's collected he's got all all the variants, he chases them down. It's part of the fun, isn't it, being a collector? Chasing down all this weird stuff. You know, and I'm sure, and no doubt he'll get these, you know, and if there's variation, he'll he'll try and hunt them down and get them, you mm. know, and, and, and he's not alone. There'll be there'll be Black Series collectors all around the world and some will be welcoming this. It's like, oh, it's good to change it up. That's not bad. You know, look at the first boxes that came out back in 2013, you know, the first wave of figures, you know, with the blue... That was the it was the blue on the on the six inch figures, wasn't it? Was it or was yes. it the orange? It was blue, wasn't it, for the blue, black, black orange, series? Yeah, orange, for and the orange for the border. 
That's right. And, and you know, so it was a nice delineation and they've kind of tweaked it and then the red flash on the side and all this stuff and now they do this, you know, and, and they're expanding their palette with the carbonized stuff and all that. So well, I'll definitely be picking up a few of these Rebels figures. They do they do look very nice. The packaging refresh is really nice. I'm a, I'm a three and three quarter inch collector, which is, I think, going to be a dying breed over the coming months yeah. and years, I think. Yeah. So there's a shame there's no actual um, vintage collection releases, but hey, um, I think I'll pick up probably Visoka, the Mando and Beskar at least. Yeah, um, of course beyond the rebels figures there's there's you know there's all the other there's all the other stuff yeah. isn't there there's Tebow that we announced on Fantatrax a few weeks ago and Akbar which looks great obviously there's the Empire Vader and Luke Snowspeeder and then as you mentioned Mando and then the Mandalorian Stormtrooper which looks fantastic and also there's a Camino clone trooper as well all in grey which looks really tidy I mean these these are really nice looking figures uh, it's, it's it's frustrating as somebody who doesn't want to collect them I'm looking at these I'm scrolling through now the article on the site and I'm looking thinking I want all of these yeah, yeah gotta yeah, get that's... Tebow we, we made the announcement on the site gotta get Tebow that's a given yeah very nice good good job Hasbro on the artwork and the packaging I really think so nice. yeah and I, I'll be I'll be interested to see because obviously let's take the Return of Jedi figures so Akbar and Tebow the kind of the artwork kind of marries up so yeah. I wonder how far or how many figures they've got in mind to kind of continue that artwork or are they well, just going to do these in pairs? From what I can see, uh, from what I've seen online, obviously numbering mm. has been a thing that people have mentioned a few times. And, and I was yeah. talking to Adam Bray, the, the, the author, Adam Bray, online. And, and Adam said, well, what what are they going to do with the numbering? Because what, what's Black Series on now? 120, 130, something like that. Uh, yeah. And I said, well, from what I can gather, it looks like this Rebel set is Zebby's 1, Chopper's 2, and so on, and 1 to 7. And then if they do the Inquisitor and other characters, it'll be 8, 9, 10. And then Jedi, you know, Akbar's 1, Tebow's 2, and then on and on. That's the way I think it will be, is that it will be numbered, and they'll pretty much start fresh, which makes you wonder at some juncture... Will they re-release all the others if they re- redo the, the facial sculpts, you know, on other figures and bring them out again? You know, they do another Lando from Empire and he goes in that line. And you know what yeah. I mean? If, if they keep doing that or the, the vibe was we did the, the vote on the site the other day and it's just finished over in the States. The American and Canadian fans have the chance to vote for that final figure, whichever one it might be. It's looking like it's going to be Cody, I think, who doesn't need a facial sculpt because he's got a helmet on. No. But, but, you know, that figure will go into the archive line. But that now they've done this refresh on the art here, it's, you're thinking, well, if that if Akbar is number one of Empire, we know that, uh, number one of Jedi, rather, we know there's loads of Jedi figures out. So are they going to come out again with, with refresh and, you know, new deco, new facial sculpts? They look great and people want them and they're selling it'd be crazy not to do it so be interesting to see indeed okay so that just about wraps it up for episode 40 of making tracks mark where can people find us if they want to reach out and ask us a question or hurl feedback at us hurl feedback at us that'd be good it's better than abuse i'm glad you asked if you want to be part of the action and stay updated on all the latest star wars news you can visit Fantatracks or check out the Fantatracks app through the app store to follow us on your mobile device but if you want to reach out to us and send in listeners questions we didn't do a listeners question today because we're pretty slammed but we are we have got some more lined up so there will be more to come uh, you can email us radio at fantatracks.com you can comment like and share on any of our social media feeds at Fantatracks. be sure to subscribe leave a review rather a five-star one than not but you know whatever you can do on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Podcatcher or Smart Speaker of choice. Take care and may the force be with you. Thanks for listening. Coming up next on Fantha Tracks Radio, it's another episode of Making Tracks.